We live in a society that looks for techniques, don't we? It's how do you get more people in the door. But really, it's not a technique. It's the Lord that we need. And for the Lord to come by His Spirit, we need to ask Him to come. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to The Vast Podcast. Jake here with my co-host, David Campbell. Hope everyone is doing well, having a great week. And uh, yeah, David, how's it going? Yeah, well, pretty good. The weather's not great, but that's England and nobody comes here for the weather. <laughs> it's kind of gloomy here in LA right now as well. We're getting a little bit of uh, some yeah, fall, it's probably, fall gloom. Probably warmer than it is here. I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. It's like mid-70s right now, I think. How's it going in the UK? Yeah, busy. We've, we've been, uh, we spent a week in the church that I started 40 years ago. That was amazing. Uh, we went over to Northern Ireland to a, a church we've uh, really fallen in love with there and God's doing some incredible things. And uh, we're moving on to, this could be the great challenge because it's a C3 church and those guys need a lot of sorting as you well. So they were heading there on uh, to Sheffield, C3 Sheffield on um, uh, Friday, uh, as which is as we're recording this is several days from now uh and so we'll see if the church is left standing once we're done with it <laughs> i'm sure you'll i'm sure you'll uh, have a lot to contribute it'll be uh it'll be a wonderful time together i've been to that church before it's a beautiful church we're looking, we are looking forward to it yeah yeah um speaking of c3s did you see that that meme i did i i said to them stop picking on my friends. <laughs> uh, I have to admit, I don't really understand the meme, but but I did get a, a, a chuckle out of it. So, um, I, Well, it's far too deep for me to understand any of them. So I've just given up trying. <laughs> so you were in the church that you started. You said 40 years ago you started that church? 40, in- 80. Wow. Um, well, what was that like? Well, it was was an honest to good and it was an honest to goodness visitation of the holy spirit we the we i was working with students on a university campus while i was trying to do my phd and uh we got a hundred uh university students gathering at seven o'clock every every morning of the entire year to pray and seek god and uh the prophetic broke out healings broke out conversions broke out and out of that we started a church and called Emmanuel, Emmanuel Church Durham. Uh, the prayer meetings were held in um, the underground sort of chapel of the castle in Durham, which is the old, oldest continuously inhabited castle in Europe, and which was built by William the Conqueror in the 11th century. And the chapel is original. It's almost a thousand years old. So people have been praying there for that long. And... Uh, and so we started the church, and over the years, um, it has planted congregations in a number of countries, uh, and just you know, thousands of people have been impacted by it, and it's still going strong today. They just bought; they've got two adjoining buildings on the campus. Uh, they bought a bigger building because they filled their older building, and uh, you know, people are coming to the Lord. We met with a group of about 60 university students on the Sunday night who were 
uh, and it, it was just fantastic to be in that environment. You know, I always love that's my fam- favorite demographic is university students. So you started we, your church 40 years ago with a prayer meeting with 100 university students in a castle. Exactly. Thousand year old. Wow. Okay. What do you now think I'm is old. what do you think is the key to a great prayer meeting? Oh, you know, it's the hearts of the people that are that are present. I mean, in the Hebrides where we visited uh, back when I lived in England and met some of the people who had been in the Hebrides revival in 1948-52. The prayer meetings were, you know, uh, free Presbyterian. They were strict Presbyterians, free Church of Scotland. Uh, they only sang the, ha- the Psalms. Their, their songs were, their um, services were in the Gallic language. And there certainly wasn't any manifestation of the gifts of the Spirit. Um, But God broke out in the most incredible ways, um, supernatural ways. Uh, I remember one of the uh, uh, guys, one of the men telling me that, uh, you know, in kind of hushed, reverent tones, as if I would never have heard such a thing in my life, that in the Sunday morning services in the local Presbyterian church where I spoke, that when the message of the gospel came to people uh, that they fell under conviction and went into a coma, as he described it, in the middle of the service, and the elders were carrying all these people in the coma. They carried them outside the church building and laid them in rows on the ground outside, which would have been cold and possibly wet. And he said, and when they came out of the coma, they were converted. That was the revival. It what, was extraordinary. What was that so, revival called? The Hebrides Revival. It's associated with a man called Duncan Campbell. The last, uh, the last revival to uh, to hit Great Britain, 1948 to 52, and uh, Duncan Campbell then became associated with the early days of YWAM. After that. Uh, is the books about it are remarkable, but I mean, we met people that had involved, been involved in it, you know, where, for instance, they'd finished evening service in a chapel in the countryside and they closed the church building up and they're all walking, you know, along the path and they turn around and suddenly the building is engulfed in light, you know, it, when all the lights had been turned off or in another service where a wind began to blow and the minister ordered the windows to be closed because people's pieces of paper were were uh, blowing about and they closed the windows and the wind just increased. So things like that, you know, these were Presbyterians. They weren't Pentecostal. So I think that the, the uh, Hebridean revival began with a group of older men and women who covenanted to remain before God one night until God had broken through and done something. At about three o'clock in the morning, um, people began to wake up across the island with visions of hell and convictions of sin. And that was the beginning of the revival. And in, in our, in our um, much less, you know, amazing sort of, but still amazing experience of prayer meetings, um, we were a group of young people meeting at seven o'clock every morning and worshiping, you know, the Lord and praying. And uh, 
and and God just came again. And so I'm, you know, I mean, but we were charismatics and young, and they were older and Presbyterian. But the only joy factor is hearts that were seeking God. So that's the key. It's not the technique. We live in a society that looks for techniques, don't we? Mm. It's how do you get a, your church bigger and all this? How do you get more people in the door? But really, the 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 it's not a technique. It's the Lord that we need, and for the Lord to come by His Spirit, we need to ask Him to come. Mm-hmm. That's wonderful. I I love that. I was reading in uh, Acts thirteen the other day, and well, when Paul and Barnabas are being sent off, and it says that there was prayer, fasting, and worship. Um, and what was funny about that is the day before I had felt impressed by God to take the first Wednesday of our month, uh, where currently we do a, a worship and ministry gathering at night. Um, but to essentially give that whole day to God every single month, starting with a morning prayer meeting, fasting throughout the day, and then capping it off with worship and ministry at night. Uh, just for that very same reason, just to turn the hearts of, of the people of our church towards God in a, a deeper way because I have of the same belief as you, David, I, I think ultimately it's up to God in regards to what kind of revival uh, will happen, but it's our responsibility to seek him uh, for a move of his Holy Spirit. And I, I want to see that across Los Angeles, Southern California. I want to be a part of, of seeing something wonderful happen in the hearts of, of people across this region. I digress though, but I was just curious because um, I'm, sure that that would have been such an amazing experience being back 40 years after having started that church and seeing it so healthy, still reaching people of all generations. And um, I'm sure that that church is phenomenal and still bears uh, your, your fingerprints all over it. I'm sure. Well, God's fingerprints. You said, you said recently, and I guess now is as good a time as any to ask you, you told me to ask you about the time where um, your wife, Elaine, uh, experienced the gift of interpretation of tongues when you guys were in, I think you were in New Zealand. Is that right? No, we were, we were in that, in the church in Durham, oh. uh, that, that I've just referred to, uh, about five years ago, it was around 2017 or 18. Um, and when we're in service, uh, obviously, you know, the churches that we are in, are are somewhere on the charismatic range um some are more so some a bit less so uh but this church is very open to the gifts of the spirit and so uh um elaine uh got up in this well she went to check with whoever was leading the service uh and asked for permission and um she got up uh took the microphone and began to sing in tongues uh and uh so then when she finished, she gave an interpretation. Uh, and the interpretation of tongues, on my understanding of 1 Corinthians, is an expression of praise toward God, because tongues is us speaking to God. It's not prophecy. That's Otherwise, un, an interpreted tongues and prophecy would be the same thing, and obviously they aren't. So, right. so just to anybody, be clear right there, what you're saying is that prophecy is a message from God to man, but interpretation of tongues is going to be a word from us to God. It's a, it's an expression right. of praise. And, yeah. And an expression of praise and worship. And so that happened. And, um, the immediate evidence was a heightening. I, I mean, there was a discernible, 
uh, heightening in the sense of the presence of God in the room. And the worship carried on and concluded. And then uh, in the break between the worship and um, the message, uh, a young lady came over to me and she was physically shaking. And she said, I'm from New Zealand. There's the New Zealand part. She said, I'm, I'm exchanged for six months or something like that from New Zealand. And um, I speak Maori, and uh, which most, she was white. And she said, most white New Zealanders don't, but I do. And your wife was singing the praises of God in Maori. And the interpretation was the perfect translation of the Maori into English. And uh, she had been texting all of her friends in New Zealand to tell them what was happening. And so obviously I told her to um, go and ask for uh, the mic so that she could tell the congregation what had happened, which you can imagine that was electrifying. And, uh, you know, I thought the, uh, you know, when, when I thought of, when I came and reflected on afterward, I thought, what was the most miraculous thing that Elaine had sung in Maori and interpreted perfectly, or that God had taken uh, a young woman from New Zealand and transported her to a church in Northern England so that someone who spoke and understood Maori would be present at that very church service where my wife got up and like, it has to be God. Don't, don't tell me God doesn't exist, you know. And uh, it was funny because one of the young guys in the church put the whole story on Facebook or something and uh, got, you know, a massive response from it. But he had one atheist friend, you know, that said, well, you know, coincidences happen. Oh, I my think, gosh. They'll always find a reason really, to disbelieve. I think, OK, <laughs> you know, you really believe that was a coincidence. I think that shows how stupid you are. But anyway. <laughs> It, I mean, it does take a whole lot of mental gymnastics to say that a woman it, who doesn't speak the Maori language just happenstance, you know, spoke uh, in that tongue with no prior uh, exposure to the language or, or, or learning of it. It's, it's pretty fascinating logic. I, I think it takes an enormous, I think it takes more faith to be an atheist than to be a Christian for sure. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm being facetious, but you know, I think, too, if he honestly believed that, then that requires an extraordinary level of credibility or gullibility or whatever, mm -hmm. faith mm -hmm. in that sense, because what are the odds? But you see, atheism is, is irrational, because that's just a minor expression of, you know, the creativity of the God who... Um, brought the conditions of life to pass, which any scientist will tell you are, you know, uh, one to a series of 40-something zeros, the possibility that life as it exists in this planet, you know, everything came into, into alignment so that we have the world as we have today, is, and, you know, you really honestly have to have the most extraordinary faith to believe that that was coincidence. So I think it takes far less faith to be a Christian, to believe that God could have raised his son from the dead. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's all kinds of great material on on that exact point about the fine tuning of the universe and 
uh, how the the possibility of life on Earth is is nothing short of miraculous. You know, we would have to say. I want to go back to something you mentioned a moment ago, which I thought was interesting. So when Elaine uh, spoke in tongues, uh, she was experiencing then uh, the experience of speaking in a language known to man, which then she gave an interpretation for in English. Um, when we're practicing the gift of interpretation of tongues, is that always going to be the interpretation of a known language that we're miraculously speaking in? Or could it also be the interpretation of a tongue that is more uttering mysteries in the spirit? Um, what we would maybe call like a prayer language or something like that? Well, you know, I think we always have assumed, or we usually have assumed that it's just some kind of heavenly language without meaning. But I think we should put a little more weight on what actually happened on the day of Pentecost. I remember talking with a young guy who um, was very, very skeptical about the gifts of the spirit. And, uh, and anyway, in my conversation with him, eventually I relayed this story of what had happened to Elaine and there was this silence and he said, well, that sounds like Pentecost. And I said, yeah, that's my point. Um, and actually, when you sort of share stories like that, other stories come to light. People come to you and tell of, you know, situations they or someone that they've known have been in. For instance, uh, a, a young friend of mine who's church planning in the city of Sheffield in England, where God willing, we're going shortly, um, was in uh, Southern Africa uh, with a uh, couple called Roland Heidi Baker. You may have heard of them. And uh, he was speaking in tongues in a meeting. And a lady came up to him at the end of the meeting and said, um, when did you live in Botswana? And he said, well, I've never been to Botswana. And she said, well, you've been praising Jesus in my Botswanan tribal dialect. Now, what are the odds of that? But you see, again, if she hadn't been present, he wouldn't have known that that was the case. So I look at it and I say, well, I think probably where there's been speaking in tongues, um, a lot more than we think, it's actually a known human language. How many languages are there? There are thousands of them. And uh, so, you know, uh, so, uh, but... But those were uh, experiences that, you know, I'm aware of. And so uh, I think they're amazing. And that certainly was, you know, Elaine would never have known. I mean, she, it's not, and it's, it's not something she does very often either. And when she does it, you know, it's only because the Holy Spirit is really compelling her to do it because she doesn't like to be on the platform. Um, but uh, that, that had an amazing uh, it was an amazing testimony to, you know, the few hundred people that were there that morning and all the people that subsequently heard about it. And, and of course, all the people that were able to tell about it, because it's one thing to, it's one thing to tell some vague story of some miracle that happened somewhere in the other side of the world a hundred years ago. It's another thing when somebody gets up and said, well, look, this happened to me, right? you know, and, and how long ago was that? It was in 2017 or 2018. I can't, yeah. I which um but you know i mean when the person that you know is standing in front of you and they're not a 
a liar, they're a credible person, uh, you know, and so on, then it, it becomes, you know, the credibility of it. It, it, it just has an impact on people. Mm-hmm. There's not really not much you can say. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, but on the day of Pentecost, it says they heard them speaking in a variety of languages, praising God, praising, see, they're, they're, that's man speaking to God. It was men and women speaking to God. It wasn't prophetic. But interestingly, the, the Jewish theologians um, classified, they, they classified that as a prophetic spirit. They, they believed that, you know, any utterance like that was a prophetic utterance. Um, and uh, so it wasn't just, you know, God is speaking to us, but it's, you know, the like where the psalmists, for instance, are extolling the greatness of God, that would be understood as a prophetic utterance, you know, a supernatural utterance as much as, um, you know, a, a, prof- a, a traditional prophetic word. But when it comes to the New Testament, we make a distinction between the gift of prophecy and, and of tongues but they're all part of the whole prophetic thing Mm -hmm. in the sense that we're prophetic people and the prophetic in using the word in a very, very broad sense encompasses Mm -hmm. the whole realm of the supernatural. Yeah. I think it's, it's the realm of the Holy spirit, right? I think we've talked about this before where prophecy and and the spirit certainly by like uh, the end of the old Testament and into the time of the first century were almost synonymous with one another. He is the spirit of prophecy. Um, and so I think to enter into a life empowered by the spirit is to be a prophetic person in, in their mind. Would that be somewhat accurate? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And just to clear up. So I, I love that. I, I've actually never heard someone make that statement before that when, when tongues are being spoken in more often than we think it's a, a possibly a known human language that's, uh, being expressed. Um, and I guess in that case, an interpretation should be sought and prayed for. Um, while at the same time, uh, we believe in the expression of tongues that is uh, an unknown uh, language. It's not, a, it's not a, a, a language that any tribe or nation speaks. It's a, uh, it's a mystery in the spirit, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians. Sam Storms makes, I think, the, the good point that when the Gentiles spoke in tongues in Cornelius's household, there were no outside witnesses present. So it would be very reasonable to think that the tongues that they were experiencing there are the tongues that uh, we happen to know uh, more commonly today in the charismatic world, um, which is more the the mystery in the spirit, because there was nobody to interpret uh, a message to, you know, in a language that they would have spoken. And I think he's, I think he's right about that. I could see that. And it would make sense to me that throughout the book of Acts, you have more than just the Acts chapter two kind of speaking in tongues. Uh, if indeed speaking in tongues as we know it commonly today is a real phenomena, uh, it would seem sensible to me that that is something that uh, believers in the first century experience as well. Yeah, I just think that when you have incidences like that, where it's a known language and the interpretation turns out to be correct, it kind of validates, uh, it doesn't validate necessarily every occasion on which someone speaks in tongues um, but it certainly validates something about the whole thing that otherwise sounds kind of weird and crazy 
and uh, so, which is cool. Anyway. I'm kind of, I'm kind of okay with the weird and the crazy, you know, in in the sense of if that's what people think, um, I I can't get away from the reality that uh, it is an edifying, a personally edifying exercise to speak in tongues, even though I speak in a language that I my mind cannot comprehend, um, and I I would hope to God that more Christians than not would have that experience. Cause I think it's such a wonderful experience for your personal prayer time. It is. Yeah. Amazing story. Um, so I wanted to talk today about dispensationalism. <laughs> uh, and you know, we're probably 30 minutes into this episode already, but that was also good. It was, it was worth talking about. Um, so, the reason I wanted to talk about it is because you had mentioned a, a, a couple of weeks back in, in our conversation on Pentecostalism and, and gifts of the spirit that Pentecostals tend to also be dispensationalists, which is uh, un unfortunate. It's a word that I think in recent years has been uh, thrown around a lot. That's probably having to do with, you know, the last couple of years, all the things going on in the world from COVID to whatever else. And so there's a lot of thought around and the, you know, the end of the world, especially now, I mean, there's all kinds of conversation around the possibility of nuclear war. Um, and, and we pray to God that such a thing would be absolutely, totally avoided. Uh, but people are, are thinking about the subject. And so a lot of sermons on end times, um, certainly our, our family over at Theos enjoy a good meme on dispensationalists. Um, and so but I would think that a lot of people don't actually know what, what it is and what are the tenets of dispensationalism, even though it's probably the most common in America of um, uh, systematic ways of understanding the uh, the return of Christ. So let's talk about that because you are, I would say, an expert on eschatolo eschatology. And so I think you can help us uh, understand these things. Well, um, dispensationalism, dispensationalism was a theological scheme uh, that was cooked up by a man called John Nelson Darby uh, in uh, the years 1828 to 1830. Um, didn't exist before then. You know, no one believed the things that Darby uh, taught before then, which automatically gives rise to some suspicion. Dispensationalism arose at the same time as the Jehovah's Witnesses, the Mormons, Seventh-day Adventists, and so all of which had an interest in eschatology, you know, the end of the world. So it was part of a wider movement that at that particular time was focusing on the end of the world. And it's not, I'm not trying to, you know, um, slander Darby by associating him with Jehovah's Witnesses or these other groups, but the fact is that there were certain common themes uh, amongst them, and uh, but Darby's idea was that um, God had two covenant peoples. He was obsessed with Israel, with the and with the restoration of Israel as a political nation. Uh, and uh, his idea was that God had sent Jesus into this world um, not so much to die on the cross as to establish an earthly kingdom political kingdom of Jewish people, whereby the Jewish people would rule the world from Jerusalem. And um, of course, that was, that's actually, ironically, very much in line with what the Jewish people at the time believed and why they understood Jesus' ministry. 
But Darby believed that and then uh, bought. Can we just pause right there? Why, why did he believe that? Well, he just did. That was his interpretation of the Bible. And uh, so when he's reading scriptures like praying for the peace of Jerusalem, he would have been interpreting Old Testament prophecy as referring to, uh, you know, linking the coming of the Messiah with the establishment of the state of Israel. Mm -hmm. That was his his thing. And, you know, he probably reading the Old Testament prophecy the way a lot of a lot of Jewish theologians read it, not necessarily all of them, but some of them in the period before Christ. And so even the disciples had that expectation and were absolutely shattered when it didn't work out. So when it didn't work out, things took a, a, a turn, a surprising turn, in that instead of the Jewish people receiving the Messiah and things panning out that way, the Romans being driven out and whatnot, that Jesus got crucified. So then Darby said, well, now God's original plan was kind of thwarted. And so he had to come up with another plan. And the plan, it was plan B, was not God's real intention. And so God's plan B was the church, uh, the Holy sending the Holy Spirit, creating the church. That is the Gentile church. And so um, this was the word dispensation refers to Darby's division of history into dispensation for a period of time. So we moved out of the age of the law and into the age of the church. And uh, so um, in this age, God deals with the Gentiles. But God has, remember, according to Darby, God has two government peoples, the Jews and the Gentiles, but he can't deal with both at once because he deals with the Jews through the law and the Gentiles through grace. So Darby was preaching this in prophetic conferences and so on between 1828 and 1830. But the problem he had was, um, how does God get rid of the church in order to fulfill his original plan? Uh, and then a young lady. Why was Mark- that a problem? Because I know where you're going with that in terms of uh, well, speak- McDonald's dream. But yeah, why was that right. an issue? It was a problem because there was no uh, uh, on the view of the return of Christ that the church had universally held for 1800 years. Christ would return visibly and there was no place for uh, a return to the rule of or the the regime of the law. Christ was going to return and then initiate the new Jerusalem. I see. And so So because his uh, such a key tenet of his eschatology was that there would be the reestablishment of uh, essentially Levitical law and living according to that. He needs to get the church out of the way. (laughs) Right. Because it wasn't the establishment of the political nation of Israel, but that was just a a necessary prerequisite for what really was going to happen, which was that Jesus was going to rule over a restored Jewish nation, which the temple would be rebuilt and the law would be fulfilled, which was God's original plan, according to Darby. And so... For instance, the Gospels are not at all relevant to the church. The Gospels were Jesus' message to the Jewish people about the kingdom. And so um, the, as far as the church is concerned, the, the uh, only from partway through the book of Acts onward is the New Testament relevant for Christians. The rest of it is just sort of advisory. Anyway. Mm, that's interesting. Um, and is that the connection between 
why dispensationalists are often anti-charismatic because all talk around the kingdom has nothing to do with you know the power of god it has to do with a political establishment see jesus preached the kingdom um but darby's understanding was that the kingdom was not the power of god the kingdom was the political restoration of and therefore the kingdom has not yet come the kingdom doesn't until the millennial rule of christ and the restoration of temple and the um it's a literal kingdom right so then this lady, this young woman called Margaret MacDonald had this vision in a prayer meeting in Scotland where she, uh, the vision was interpreted, uh, I mean, I read it, reread it, the vision was interpreted to refer to a secret invisible return of Christ. And when Darby heard of this, which we knew there were connections between him and the, the Irvingites, who were an early charismatic movement that went badly off the rails, but Darby was, and see the dispensationalist theologians will airbrush this out, but Darby was connected with them, had connections with them. And when he heard of this prophetic word, this, the brilliant Bible teacher, and all of a sudden it provided a magical solution to the problem because if there was going to be a second return of Christ, which no one in 1800 years had ever um, imagined or interpreted to be in the Bible, and the second return of Christ was invisible rather than the visible one that was referred to in the Gospels, then the purpose of this invisible return of Christ would be to remove the Gentile church from the world so that God could get back to his original plan. And hey, presto, Darby was in business so and that was i don't think you specified but the dream or at least i didn't hear because i was the, the, the vision that she had involved an invisible return of christ which then manifested as what uh th that's what darby picked up and called the rapture the rapture right yeah no one had ever talked about a rapture before so now for the first time in 1800 years, there are two returns of Christ. So you have this One, first return where Jesus invisibly returns, the church is raptured, taken out of the world, and that deals with the problem. So now God, in that this new period of time, God can deal with Israel. That's dispensationalism. Right. So after a seven-year period of tribulation, which Darby invented, because no seven-year period of tribulation in the Bible, but uh, he... Uh, gave a very contorted interpretation of four verses in Daniel chapter 9, which you could never find a seven-year, literal seven-year tribulation in unless you read, read it into the text to begin with. But Darby assumed that this seven-year period of tribulation, he then linked with, with the book of Revelation, and it was the Gentile nations attacking the Jews, and at the end of which Jesus would return visibly a second time and the purpose would be to establish, not to bring in the New Jerusalem, which was the church, what the church had always believed, but to bring in a uh, Jewish uh, state rule. Christ would be sitting on a literal throne in Jerusalem. The temple would be restored. The sacrificial system would operate in the presence of Christ, which is the most ludicrous thing I can ever think of in light of the teaching of the book of Hebrews. But but and 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 the raptured Gentiles would be kind of floating above Earth somewhere. He supposed that you probably could see 
the New Jerusalem or wherever the Gentiles were floating above Earth, you could see it from, you know, the uh, millennial uh, place of the millennial rule of Christ on Earth. And and some dispensationalist theologians um, even said that people could visit back and forth. And so, uh, you know, the the whole thing is just beyond ridiculous. But the the when when you when you realize the full extent of it, and so, um, but the problem is that people don't realize the full extent of it. All they all they know is or believe in is there'll be a rapture, and uh, you know, and Israel will be restored, and they they that's about it. So they're kind of uh, they they embrace the end result the tip of the iceberg, if you want to put it that way, without understanding what the iceberg is uh, that goes along with it. And the gross distortion of the scriptures where the gospels aren't even relevant for the church, you know. And uh, and then, of course, you have to interpret 1 Thessalonians 4. We haven't really got time to go into that, but... No, we do. You know, we, have t- we have time. Well, where where Christ... You know where we're caught up to meet the mm-hmm. Lord in the, and uh, Darby termed that the rapture because that's the uh, Latin word, right? Rap, was it like raptio or something like that? Latin word to me, it's the Latin word for the which translates the Greek verb parpazo, which means to be caught up. Right. And um, but the the wording in one Thessalonians four, which centers around two words, uh. Parousia, which is the appearing of the Lord, and apentasis, which is a meeting with the Lord. So this parousia occurs um, as the Lord descends in the clouds, and we are caught up for a meeting and apentasis with the Lord. Both of these words were widely used in the Greek culture to refer to the visitation of the king, which is quite appropriate, obviously. That's why Paul used them. And so the king, when he came to visit a locality, supposing like the president, uh, seems you're located in the United States, supposing the president uh, landed in Air Force One uh, somewhere outside of uh, Los Angeles. Los Angeles probably isn't the best because the airport's more central, but supposing another city where the airport was outside the city, the president would land there and a delegation, the mayor, the dignitaries, senators, etc., would go out to meet the president at the air base and honor him. Then they would escort him back into the city, uh, and he would take up a place of rule. And in in the Roman case, when Caesar did that, uh, the perp- when he sat down in the city to rule, it was to exercise judgment. And so, uh, uh, and so, the idea is that. The citizens go out, they greet Caesar, they greet the king, they then bring him back into the city to declare his lordship over the city. So the doctrine of the rapture reverses the entire meaning of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. The idea is that Jesus is returning, we will be caught up to meet him, the dead and the living, in order to escort him back into, you know, the newly recreated uh, heavens and earth, the new Jerusalem, over, and then he will sit down and judge. That'll be the last judgment. And 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 we declare his rule. Whereas the rapture doctrine says, 
Jesus is coming. He's lost control. God has lost control of this earth. It's in the control of the enemy. And Jesus is coming to steal his church away to another place. And he leaves the city in control of, of the enemy and his agents. And so... For, um, seven, for seven years. For seven years. Mm-hmm. So, but the whole idea is reversed. And, um, you know, the word harpazo in Greek was printed on tombstones. A person was snatched away into death. It was a word of great sorrow. It was kind of like when we say passed away. And Paul uses that word harpazo, which was, the, which was a, a, a word associated with grief and mourning and hopelessness in Greek culture because they had no hope in the resurrection or in God. And he turns it around and says, no, the snatching away isn't to, you know, um, the, the underworld or whatever they believed in. That we're, we're, we're not snatched away into death. We're caught up into life. He uses, that's the reason he uses that word harpazo, to be caught away or caught up, because he's turning around the cultural meaning of it, which was the triumph of death, and he's turning it into the triumph of life. And then he amplifies it by saying, we're going to meet the Lord and bring him back into rule. The same word meeting is used in Acts chapter, was used in the parable of the virgins, actually, in Matthew 24, where The virgins go out for a meeting with the bridegroom. Now, when they meet the bridegroom, what do they do? The text tells us in Matthew's gospel, they bring the, they escort the bridegroom back into the city, into the feast, right? They're not caught away with the bridegroom. They go out to meet him to bring him back in. Same in Acts 27, where there's an apentasis, where the Roman Christians go out to meet Paul at the place called Three Taverns, Trace to Bernai in Latin, and then it says they escort him back to Rome. It's an act of honor. They escort him back into Rome, where he takes up his residence. So yeah, that's a huge key because otherwise you're thinking we're getting caught up in the air to then float off into space. Right. But the meaning is that we're caught up into the air in order to escort the Lord into his uh, into the world that is his, so that the kingdom can fully come. And the great thing about it is. It's not just that that was the meaning in Greek, but the same words appear elsewhere in the New Testament with that exact meaning in different contexts. So one of which refers to the return of the Lord. So it's crystal clear. Mm-hmm. And uh, But, you know, I mean, I, I used to get accused of, well, he doesn't believe in the return of the Lord. Right. That's because I taught against the rapture. I do believe in the return of Christ, but I don't believe in a second invisible return of Christ. The Bible never talks about. Right. We it, believe that when he comes back, we are all going to know. <laughs> the other the other text that people uh, point to and misinterpret uh, is in the Gospels where Jesus is talking about this time. And, you know, there'll be two working in the field. One will be taken. The other will be left. Um, but... Uh, we've kind of turned that on its head, right? Because he says it'll be like as in the days of Noah. Um, And I think that's the key to understanding that text rightly. Talk about that. Well, you could talk about it. I mean, well, just the the idea that as in the days of Noah, uh, the the person who's uh, left behind um, isn't the one who's been, 
who who doesn't belong to God. It's the person who who does belong to God. The ones that are swept away are the ones the ones that are, right. are, are evil in the days of Noah. And so, but we've taken that as a rapture doctrine, saying, well, like the person who floated off is the one that God you know chose and called and saved, and the person left behind has to suffer for this seven year tribulation. And they, I don't know, that maybe they get a second go or something. Um, but that's not how it was in the days of Noah. The ones who were left behind were <laughs> the ones hanging out on the boat. <laughs> <laughs> doing all right so um yeah okay so here's a question this is dis- dispensationalism i guess in its full name is called i think and maybe i'm wrong about this but is it dispensational premillennialism in contrast to historic premillennialism because my question is does does historic premillennialism believe in two comings as well Dispensationalism is the the name that's given to the entire theological system that encompasses everything that I've kind of tried to describe briefly. Premillennialism is a sub-department of dispensationalism, uh, which says that Christ will return before establishing an earthly millennium. Um, But the distinction that has to be made is that in church history, there have been some people who believed in a literal millennial rule of Christ, but had, but had, you know, it had nothing to do with all the rest of it concerning Israel. With the rapture and, and Israel and all that. No rapture, no Israel, no rebuilt temple, no nothing like that. They simply interpreted on the basis of Revelation chapters 20 that Christ would return. And first of all, there would be a thousand year millennial reign on earth. And at the end of that, would transition into sort of the full-blown New Jerusalem. Now, the people that uh, um, advocated that view were some of the earliest church fathers. The earliest church fathers were divided. Um, I started reading a book. Uh, there's only one academic book ever been written. It's called Regnum Calorum, which means the kingdom of heaven in Latin, by a man called Charles Hill. And he, uh, as it, it as goes through all these ancient texts and tries to sort out who believed what about the millennium. Um, and it seems that, you know, there was a division uh, in the early church fathers. Maybe a majority did not believe in a millennium and a minority did believe in a literal millennium. But it never really got into a thing. It was just some did and some didn't and and those who didn't didn't believe in a literal thousand year millennium some people believed in a literal thousand year rule some people didn't mm-hmm. but because there wasn't an enormous amount of significance attached to the thousand year rule um it, it didn't really get argued about a lot um i'm just simp- grossly simplifying for the sake of time sure um, so to this day there have been some people who simply on their interpretation of Revelation chapter 20, believe that Christ will establish a millennial rule. Mm -hmm. It has nothing to do with Israel. There's no rapture, uh, no, not, there's no seven year tribulation. And Um, therefore only one coming. He's coming, he establishes the thousand year rule. And during that thousand year rule, there's still the presence of of righteous and unrighteous, which would be kind of at odds with... uh, with other, you know, verses in Revelation that seem to point to the fact that when Christ comes back, that 
that is going to be dealt with and there will be no unrighteous in the kingdom of God. Yes, because if you believe in that literal millennium on the basis of Revelation 20, then you have to believe that there's another battle between good and evil at the end of it. And so the question of how could Christ be presiding in person over a, a, a kingdom which is supposed to be characterized by long life and blissful conditions and how could it all wind up so badly? Um, but uh, uh, some some people have that view. Do they point that, to texts like when Isaiah is talking about, you know, the lion will lay down with the infant kind of right. thing, or what? You know, they'll be able to put their hand over the snake's den. That that's kind of like that thousand year time where it's idyllic, but it's not it's not eternal yet. Correct. Whereas we would say that Isaiah is using the language that is available to him to describe a a kingdom that is otherworldly, but he's using examples that people can relate to and go, wow, that sounds impossible. Um, but that's what God's right. going to do. Yeah. Yeah. That, yeah. That, that's how I would interpret it. Um, Let's read without... really quick. Sorry. No, you finish. And then I just want to, I pulled up revelation 20 as well. Cause I want to read from that yeah. really quick. Just give I, a brief explanation. There are, there are all sorts of internal arguments from the book of revelation, which indicate that the millennium is just another way of referring to the period of time between the resurrection of Christ and the return of Christ, which is we could call the church age, the current age which we live. And, you know, it would be another whole discussion to for me to, to go into all the reasons for that, but there are a ton of them. So the superficial reading looks like, oh, this is a thousand year rule after everything. But actually, when you look into the text carefully, that's not what it means. The, the millennium is just a, the, the, the thousand years. Every number in Revelation is symbolic, and the number thousand in the Bible is just an indefinitely long period of time. And it refers to the period of time in which we now live, which begins with the resurrection and the binding of Satan. Uh, and it ends with um, the, the battle between good and evil and the return of Christ, which is what chapter 20 depicts. So I think that, yeah, the confusing part for people in chapter 20 is, uh, is, is this bit here where um, John says, uh, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. Um, they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So there's your millennium. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. So What's going on there? John John is referring to exactly the same thing as the Apostle Paul does in uh, Romans chapter 6, where he talks about dying and rising with Christ. Mm -hmm. The first resurrection is the only time in the Bible where a number is attached to resurrection or to death. The first resurrection and the second death are both spiritual entities. The first resurrection is is all those who have been born again, come to life out of death. And so he's talking there about the church age being the thousand years and those who come to life are the saved who then enter into the presence of the Lord and reign with Christ 
in the heavenly places, which is depicted in the book of Revelation in several places, for instance, chapter 7 and 14, where John sees the deceased saints reigning now with Christ in the heavenly places. That's those who participate in the first resurrection. Those who don't are those who are eternally lost, and they experience the second death, which is a spiritual death. So you have to go through the first spiritual resurrection in order to avoid the second spiritual death. Or as somebody put it when I was a young Christian, born once, die twice, born twice, die once. <laughs> and I know that people that are listening to this are just going to have their head full by this point, but it's an opportunity for me to advertise my book, Mystery Explained, yes. which one of our own C3 pastors called me up the other day and said, this book changed my life. So that was one of, that's a great endorsement. I owe him 50 bucks at least for saying that. Um, <laughs> But uh, but I do, in my book, Mystery Explained, which you can get on Amazon, uh, I go through all of this in a, in a, I, in a simple way. I mean, it's, you know, it, 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 it's not simplistic, but it's clear. And I explain verse by verse all the way through the book of Revelation. And I have had a, a really good response from people, uh, you know, from that. So I, it's not that I'm trying to flog books, but... If, if you're interested in it, then go buy my book and it'll be really, really helpful to you. And the thing I, I just said before, before we finish, Jake, is that your eschatology affects everything you believe. Exactly. And that's why it's a life-changing book. We, and, and we've seen in this pandemic, dispensationalism, dispensationalism teaches the Antichrist is around every corner. The, the devil is in charge. And we have seen a cascade of people falling into conspiracy theories in the body of Christ is a direct result of their dispensational theology, whether they've even connected the dots or not. But we're a people who, on the basis of the New Testament, believe that Jesus Christ is Lord. This is God's world. Everything that happens here, as Revelation teaches, is under the control of God, even the things that the devil does. We're not to be afraid of Mr. Putin or anybody else. Kingdoms will come and go, but there's only one kingdom which will remain and that is our hope. There's no room for fear, and we don't have to. Uh, you know, if you want to be protected from stupid conspiracy theories, um, and 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 if you want to be protected from making your Christian life ruled by be ruled by fear of what's happening in the world around you, then you know, get a handle on what biblical eschatology really is, because it will really set you free. Amen. Well, I know we got to wrap up. David, always appreciate your time. Thank you so much for all your wisdom and your knowledge and uh, have an amazing weekend in Sheffield. Thank you.